You managed to get one of my idols on the podcast today. Yeah, I can't remember how I tricked her into hanging out with us, but we have Maria Morera. I swear I say your last name probably right 50% of the time. (laughs) (laughs) It's all right. You're probably doing better than a lot of people, so it's okay. Really, Ross? Morera? That's not a difficult name. That's embarrassing. Last name Morera. I don't know what to say. I am embarrassed. But despite my speech impediment, Maria, a.k.a. The Hammer, as she is sometimes referred to by this well-deserved nickname, is also one of my idols. She is a force in the emergency department and in the field of emergency medicine. She is an expert in the emergency management of trauma, and it turns out she knows a fair amount about the surgical side of things as well. Maria actually started out her career as a general surgery resident at Denver Health. You did, what, three years of a surgical residency before you switched over to emergency medicine? Yes, I think uh, once when I graduated from emergency medicine, I was a PGY-9 because I had done three years of general surgery, three years of research, and then three years of emergency (laughs) medicine. So, yes, I could not do a fellowship. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) had to start working at some point. Right. (laughs) After residency, Maria went on to become faculty at Denver Health and then eventually the program director for the Denver Health Residency in Emergency Medicine for a number of years. Maria is now currently the Director of Continuing Education and Simulation for Denver Health Hospital Authority. She is also the Director of Professional Faculty Development at Denver Health. She is co-director of the Rocky Mountain Trauma Conference, the section editor for adult trauma for Up to Date, and this year will be the section editor for Secrets of Emergency Medicine. She co-authored a book that was just released last August entitled Communications in Emergency Medicine. She is also currently the president of the Council of Residency Directors, a.k.a. CORD, which is a national organization of residency directors in emergency medicine across the United States. Whew. Uh, any other titles that I'm missing? Ooh, let's see. I'm a mom. A <laughs> what? <There you> <laughs> Important. I'm actually fairly sure you did miss some titles, but you guys get the point. She's a badass. Let's move on. I brought Maria here today to discuss penetrating neck wounds. I wanted to start us off by setting the scene with this scenario. Say we're dispatched to a stabbing. We arrive to find a 30-something male holding a shirt to his neck. Shirt used to be white, but now it's stained red. You pull the bloody shirt away to discover a three-centimeter puncture wound to the left neck. What's running through your head at this point? When you have a stab wound to the neck, there are a lot of structures that could be injured. So how did the stab wound occur? In which direction did it go? What structures could be injured? How sick could this patient be? Remember that so many different body systems travel through the neck. The respiratory system has the trachea, and even the apex of the lung can be involved. 
The vascular system has a bunch of big arteries and veins that can bleed a ton, like the carotid, the jugulars, the subclavian, and neck wounds may even involve the arch of the aorta or the heart itself. The nervous system has the spinal cord and all the nerves that exit in the neck, and the GI system has the esophagus. Yeah, that's great, Matt. And I just want to highlight a key point there, too, that even structures that aren't specifically in the neck can be involved. It really depends on the trajectory. So if it goes, if the patient was stabbed to the neck and it goes into the chest, you have to think about big vessels, subclavian vessel. You have to think about the heart. Um, You have to think about the lungs because the lungs come up a little bit over the clavicles. And so you have to think about things like pneumothorax, tension pneumothorax, simple pneumothorax, cardiac tamponade. So those are all things going through my head that can make a patient really sick really quickly when they get stabbed to the neck. Should we explore the wound to see what might be injured or how deep it goes? So not in the neck. We don't want to explore those. We want to leave those alone because we can get into a lot of trouble if we start exploring them. All right, so it sounds like, based on what you're saying, we need to worry about three main systems, respiratory, cardiovascular, and the nervous system. So let's break down our concerns and treatments by system as we move forward, and maybe let's start with the respiratory system. What are we looking for on our exam that might suggest a respiratory injury? If you see the wound and you see air bubbling out of the wound, you need to consider that there could be a respiratory injury. Shortness of breath, so the patient might just be complaining that it's hard for them to take a deep breath. They might look like they're having difficulty breathing um, when you're listening to their lungs if they have absent or decreased breath sounds. And also we can look for crepitus, just like we do with anybody else that we're concerned about a chest injury, looking for evidence of a potential pneumothorax. All right, so when would you consider intubating this patient? So these are scary. You want to protect the airway. If they are not protecting their own airway, you would start to think about intubating them if they're not oxygenating appropriately. So what we think about with anybody else that we're thinking about, do I need to intubate them or not? Matt, we should pause here for a second because I think this is something that we say a lot. We say the words intubate somebody if they can't protect their own airway. But can you just talk to our listeners? What exactly do we mean when somebody can't protect their airway? What are we looking for? Some of the things I think of in this case are they are having something that like bubbling in their airway, so vomit or blood, if they are snoring and it doesn't correct with a simple jaw thrust or chin lift, if you see a bunch of secretions pooling, I think those are all things that suggest that this person is not protecting their airway and might need an advanced airway. The other thing is if you have hypoxia that's just not getting better with oxygen, that's another sign that maybe air is not traveling through the airway and that's why they're hypoxic. If they are hypotensive, you do want to think about potentially resuscitating them first before you take control of their airway, unless it really, unless you feel their airway is just going to be compromised really quickly. In that situation, you need to take control of their airway sooner rather than later. And what do you mean by resuscitating somebody with low blood pressure? So if their blood pressure is low, and you're in this case, I would think hemorrhagic shock first, because you always want to think hemorrhagic shock and trauma, then I would give them blood first and see if we can appropriately bring up their blood pressure. So I'd like to see their blood pressure come up a little bit before I want to give them medications to intubate them, because we can cause other problems if we intubate too early. Hold up, Ross. I don't want to just gloss over that, because that's a big point. Resuscitate before you intubate. Now, this might not be possible for every patient, but I think it's important And I think it's something I had no idea about when I was a paramedic. Do you want to just talk about quickly what that means to resuscitate before you intubate? When you're thinking about intubating somebody, that's a big decision. And you got to think very carefully about it because that can definitely have negative consequences. 
This is a big deal in systems that have RSI capabilities too, especially when you're considering taking away the patient's own respiratory drive with medications that are going to have questionable to even negative hemodynamic consequences. Ask yourself, has their pre-oxygenation and blood pressure been optimized as much as possible for what the current situation will allow before you proceed? And don't forget to consider tension pneumothorax or cardiac tamponade in these cases as a cause of your hypotension. And if present, make sure to correct those prior to intubation if possible. I think this point is where we have to call attention to the fact that this is advanced paramedic thinking. This is not your paramedic book, your paramedic instructor. The right thing to do when you're not sure is to fall back on your ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. However, this and what we're trying to talk about captures that gray area where A, B, and C can all be going on at once, and you have to think about them all at once. And it's a classic example is what Rasha said, the pneumothorax, where that's B, but you shouldn't fix A without fixing B, because if you don't decompress a pneumothorax and you try to intubate, they could code. And I think that's a important representation of the physiology of taking an airway in someone who's hypoxic and hypotensive. They have no oxygen reserve, and they have little to no ability to increase their blood pressure more when you take away that spontaneous respiratory drive. Yeah, that lack of oxygen return is going to limit the amount of time that you actually have to get a tube through the trachea. So attempting to pre-oxygenate them and get those oxygen saturations up as high as you can is going to give you more time during your intubation attempt. As far as their blood pressure goes, you need a blood pressure to get oxygen to your organs. If you're not getting oxygen to your organs, they're building up acid. As soon as that acid starts to build up in your bloodstream, organs cease to function properly. Your blood pressure drops even further as your vascular tone decreases because it can't squeeze due to the acid production. Your heart fails to squeeze as well as it could because of that acid production. When there's a bunch of acid in your blood, we blow that off. We blow that off by breathing. So when you take away somebody's ability to breathe with an intubation or you stop bagging them with your bag valve mask in an attempt to intubate, they can no longer blow off that acid. And as soon as it reaches critical mass in your bloodstream, they will arrest. It's just something you got to think about before you do this. Yeah, that's a really great way to think about it and think about the physiology. The other thing I'll say is that you can accomplish A by just putting a BLS airway in. And if that's working, a is done, and then you can move to resuscitate by optimizing their breathing and oxygenation and optimizing their blood pressure as part of circulation. Um, a does not mean intubation. So I think that that is probably the most important nuance to take away from this. If you want to resuscitate before you intubate, you can just take care of A with a BLS airway. Yeah, it's a really good point. Matt and I just opened Pandora's box here. Like Matt said, this is some advanced level discussion that was maybe not covered in your paramedic school. In order to fully understand the consequences of intubation can have on an individual, this will require a much more in-depth discussion of the pathophysiology. In fact, I think this deserves its own episode and we'll plan on covering it in the future. In the meantime, we will include more discussion and links to resources in the show notes on the topic. At the end of the day, though, despite all the higher level of knowledge, remember, the basics are what save lives. What about for the pre-hospital provider who may not have blood in their system? Would you recommend giving crystalloid? Would you recommend waiting on intubation until they got to the hospital in this patient? Yeah, and that's going to be a little bit dependent, right? If the air, Like I say, if they think the airway is the primary concern at that moment and they think that they're going to lose an airway and the patient is having a lot of difficulties, I think you need to intubate them because then that's the big problem at first. I think, you know, if it's not... Um, 
immediate that you need to put a tube in, but you're concerned that potentially the airway might uh, be compromised, then you can give them a little bit of fluids and see if that blood pressure comes up. And then once they get to the hospital, we can start the blood and try to get that blood pressure up a little bit more before we intubate them. But again, if they think that the first concern is the airway and that they're going to lose the airway in an emergent fashion, then they should intubate just like they would with anybody else. Okay. So let's say you've decided that you need to intubate this person. What's your approach to this intubation? A very careful, thoughtful <laughs> approach. You have plan A to Z. But I mean, it, just like anyone else, the first step is to do uh, oral intubation. You know, you always attempt the oral intubation first, but you want to make sure that you can look at the neck. Oral intubation and cricothyrotomy are both going to be very difficult in such a patient, or they can be, right? Because you might have a hematoma in the way, it might be moving the structures for you, and so it can be very difficult. But I would attempt the oral intubation first, and then if it's not successful, that's when I would go to the surgical airway. When they're in the department, and I know in the pre-hospital arena, you don't have all the things that we have in the hospital, so it's a little bit you know, easier yeah. in the hospital, yeah. we also can get our you know, our surgical consultants there, so we have more hands on board. Um, but in the pre-hospital setting, without any medications to be able to give this patient, unless it's emergent, you're not going to be really doing this intubation. But in that setting, I'd still go with either oral tracheal or nasotracheal intubation, just like you would with anybody else whose airway you're going to lose. But you have to recognize that this could be a difficult airway, and it might be hard to intubate them. And Matt, you have to be ready to move to plan B if your attempt at intubation is failing. Yeah, you have to have thought of this plan ahead of time. We just talked about how critical and time sensitive the airway is in a hemodynamically unstable patient. So before you even attempt intubation, you think to yourself, if I can't get this tube, what's my next step? What's my backup plan? What am I going to do? And if it's a patient you couldn't even ventilate with a BBM prior to intubation, then that next step will likely need to be a cricothyrotomy. Every time I walk into work, I think about my plan. That's how I kind of get myself in the mindset of a, for a shift is I go through plan A, B, C, D, E, F. That is one thing that I think has helped it become automatic and I don't really get as nervous as I used to. Yeah, having thought through your plan A to C will allow you to transition quickly from one plan to the next without delay, allowing you to secure the airway much quicker. Okay, so we successfully innovated this patient. Our repeat blood pressure is now 60 over palp. We talked a little bit about the concerns for hypotension in this patient, but can you just go through your process now and working through a hypotensive patient with a stab wound to the neck? When you have a stab wound to the neck, there are a lot of different potential uh, injuries that can occur. And so, you know, one is certainly injury to the vessel. So you have to think about hemorrhagic shock. And again, I always in trauma, you put that first. And so the hypotension could be secondary to hemorrhagic shock. So one is looking to see if there is there active bleeding coming from the wound, or do you see a hematoma that's developing? The other part, and remember that if this injury is going into the chest, there might be bleeding there that you just don't see, right? In the ED, we can certainly use our trusty ultrasound, and which makes things a lot easier for us because we can take a look and see if there's fluid around the heart, which currently we don't have uh, in the pre-hospital setting. But maybe in the future, that'll be available as well. So you have to think about where are they, are they bleeding, and you have to think, can I stop the bleeding if it's external? So you can try to put pressure. And there's some other things that we could do, and we uh, talk about putting a Foley catheter through the track of, uh, of the wound and then inflating it with about 10 to 15 ml of saline, and that can help to tamponade the bleeding. Well, that's a pretty cool MacGyver technique, using a Foley to stop bleeding. Not every ambulance or agency has Foley's uh, in the back of the truck, so other things you can do is if you you know, see the 
spurting vessel yourself. You can just put a finger on it like we classically teach in EMT school. You can also pack the wound or if you have quick clot or some other hemostatic agent that your agency allows you to use, you can do that as well. The other things you have to think about is could this be you know, could this be an injury to the lungs and could this be a tension pneumothorax that's causing that hypotension? Could it also be cardiac tamponade that's causing that hypotension? And so thinking about those things and um, using what you can from your physical exam to help you determine whether those are going on. And then the other thing is that certainly nerves can be injured, spinal cord can be injured. So you have to think about things like neurogenic shock. But in the setting of trauma, we're going to go and with this patient, we're going to first deal with the hemorrhagic shock, look at all those other things, take care of those things. And then at the end, if they're not responding to resuscitative efforts, then is when you has to think about doing vasopressors for neurogenic shock. And honestly, the patient can have both things, right? They can have hemorrhagic shock and they can also have component of neurogenic shock as well. Yeah. Neurogenic shock is one of those things in a trauma patient we often should keep in the back of our head, but just like we've said multiple times already, hemorrhagic shock should be first and foremost on your treatment plan and in your mind. And a lot of times neurogenic shock is something that's going to be worked out on the back end once we have more data. Right. So we stabilized the patient and arrived to the hospital. Can you talk about what your approach to the patient will be when we arrive and give them to you at the hospital? Sure. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a historical perspective as we're talking about this. Nice. So before World War II, all these wounds were treated expectantly. Expectantly is the word that you use when you want to sound really smart. But what you really mean is, let's wait and just see what happens. And in doing that, they had about a 35% mortality. And so in order to reduce that mortality, the approach was slightly changed. And that became sort of a zone approach. And we talked about three different zones. And so zone one was below the cricoid cartilage. Zone two was from the cricoid cartilage to the angle of the mandible. And then zone three is from the angle of the mandible and up. And with this approach, if the patient had an injury in zone two, that was a mandatory exploration. And then zone one and zone three, because they're more complicated approaches surgically, those ended up getting studies first and then sort of de determined which approach was used to take care of those wounds. What happened, though, is that this led to a very high negative exploration rate. And so in trying to figure out how should we change that, we went to this no zone approach now. And that is really our current approach. But I think knowing those zones can still be really helpful to us as pre-hospital providers because that just gives us another tool in our language toolkit to kind of explain to you over the phone what we're seeing on scene. We can tell you which zone it's in and based on that can help set you up better for consideration of what things might be injured based on where the zone may be. I think exactly what you said is, is really important. I think even though we might not use that zone approach now to really decide where, you know, what are we going to do with this patient? It does help us create sort of this shared mental model, right? If I get a phone call and somebody's telling me there's a stab wound to the neck that's about three centimeters long and it's in zone two, right? It, set, it sets that picture for me. And zone two is the most common zone, which is good because it's also the easiest zone for us to to access. And then that's followed by zone one and zone three. And and zone one is a pretty concerning zone because that's where you're thinking about, oh, did they get into the mediastinum? Did they get into the chest? Uh, but 
you know, I think knowing those zones and letting us know that really helps us to create sort of that picture in our mind as the provider that's getting that phone call on the other side. And so what we do now is we say, does the wound penetrate the platysma, right? The very thin layer under the neck. Wait, what is that word? Did you say platypus? No, we're not talking about the dinosaur, Matt. The platysma is actually a very thin muscle that lives just underneath the skin of your neck. Essentially, all of the important structures live just deep to this muscle. If it's not penetrated, then those structures should be intact. I think a platypus is still a living thing. Isn't it a marsupial? No, you idiots. It's a semi-aquatic egg-laying mammal. How can we trust anything else they're saying? And so if it doesn't penetrate the platysma, we're done. We can close the wound, clean it out, close it, and we're done, and nothing else needs to be done. And then we start thinking about, well, is the patient stable or unstable? If the patient is unstable, then the patient goes to the OR because the thought is that they have a significant injury and they need operative repair. Certainly, you still are going to try to do your resuscitation and your management as you're getting them up to the OR, but those will go to the OR. If the patient is stable, then you have to think about, well, do we need to do anything else? So if the patient is stable, then you start thinking, does the patient have symptoms? If they do have symptoms, then they actually get a CT angio because now we're saying, okay, they have symptoms. That means that there must be some type of injury you know, it's not something that requires OR right this second because they're not unstable. So we have some time to really delineate what that injury is so that the surgeons can then determine their approach to the injury. If they have no signs or symptoms, then we typically will consult with our surgeons. At a minimum, they should get observed for 24 hours. And that includes plus or minus doing any, any other studies. So sometimes if you get the studies and there's nothing, then you might be able to let that patient go earlier. But if you're not going to get studies, then those patients should be watched to just make sure they're not going to develop any symptoms. Okay. So what symptoms are we looking for that are going to suggest they need a CT angio? We have hard signs, what we call hard signs, and then we have what we call soft signs. What we do is if patient has hard signs, those are signs that suggest this patient should go to the OR. So what are those signs? There are a couple of them. If you have severe or uncontrolled hemorrhage, if they have a pulsatile or expanding hematoma, because that suggests that they're still bleeding and actively bleeding, any thrills or bruise, because again, that suggests an injury to those vessels, hypotension, uh, unresponsive to aggressive fluid resuscitation. So there's ongoing bleeding. You can't really get that blood pressure up. You're giving them blood products and doing all of that. And so you're assuming that there's a bad injury, a bad vascular injury. Absent or diminished radial pulse for the same reason, for the vascular injury consideration. And neurologic deficits consistent with cerebral ischemia, air bubbling from the wound like we talked before, massive hemoptysis or respiratory distress. These are all concerning features. And so those patients go to the OR. So then we start to think about the saw signs. And these are signs that, well, you know, they should suggest that there's an injury, but they don't need immediate surgery. So what are those? Those are proximity wounds. So meaning there's sort of some wound close to, to where there's a big vessel, right? And so we need to then explore that a little bit with a CT scan. Minor hemorrhage. So there is some bleeding, but it's not continuing. It's not excessive. Mild hypotension, but it's responding to fluid. So they were a little hypotensive. You gave them some fluid or you gave them some blood and it's responded. So you have some time then to, to figure out what really is the injury. The same thing with minor hemoptysis or hematemesis, subcutaneous or mediastinal air. The thought here is, yeah, that, that's probably some type of pneumothorax or air that's come out, but you have some time maybe to to differentiate where it is or, or what it is. Non-expanding hematoma, dysphonia, and dysphagia. And then these patients will get a CT scan to better delineate what those injuries are. And just because they are stable, but they're having these soft signs. So that means that you need to at least explore 
if there's an injury. All right, pause. That was a lot of great stuff there. Matt, can you just summarize for our listeners what our approach to the stab wound in the neck is in the emergency department so they can have a better understanding of how we're going to treat these patients, what's concerning, what's not concerning, what's in between? If the wound doesn't violate the platysma, we're done. Sew them up and let them go home. But if the wound violates the platysma, well, then we have more work to do. If they are hemodynamically unstable, well, then they go straight to the OR for surgical exploration. If they are hemodynamically stable, then you look for any hard signs that would suggest the patient should still go to the operating room immediately for surgical exploration. Yeah, these hard signs include severe or uncontrolled hemorrhage, a rapidly expanding or pulsatile hematoma, thrills or bruise, hypotension unresponsive to aggressive fluid or blood product resuscitation, absent or diminished radial pulse, and neurologic deficits consistent with cerebral ischemia, air bubbling from wound, massive hemoptysis, or respiratory distress. Now, if there are no hard sides present, you look for other signs or symptoms that might suggest the need for advanced imaging just to make sure we're not missing a serious injury that would need surgery. Yeah, these are the soft signs, which include proximity wounds, minor hemorrhage, mild hypotension that responds to fluid resuscitation, minor hemoptysis or hematemesis, subcutaneous or mediastinal air, or a non-expanding hematoma, or any dysphonia or dysphagia, meaning difficulty to talk or difficulty with swallowing. But at the end of the day, if the patient has no hard or soft signs, but that neck wound did violate the platysma, well then they're going to need observation at a minimum of 24 hours to assure that they do not develop any of those signs or symptoms and can safely go home. The other thing I'd like to to talk about a little bit is the likelihood of C-spine fractures. And I think, you know, in the pre-hospital setting, appropriately so, patients get put in collars pretty early on. And I think it's appropriate because you don't have time to figure that out. We're just going to square that out early on, right? And so if there's any concern, I'd much rather get somebody with a collar than without one because we can always take them off. But there's a very low likelihood of C-spine fractures or spinal cord injury in these patients. And when you look at the incidence of it, the incidence of C-spine fracture from a gunshot wound is 1.35%, and from stab wounds, it's 0.12%, so pretty low incidence. And then the spinal cord injury incidence is even lower. So it's pretty low. But again, if there's any question, I'd much rather get the patient with the C-collar on, and then we can always take it off later. Totally. Yeah, those are incredibly low numbers. And the C-collar, when we're talking about a penetrating injury to the neck, can can sometimes hamper our ability to provide blood control, to visualize the wound, to see if there's an expanding hematoma or crepitus that's developing en route. So it can really hinder our care to that patient. So it's, it's not always the best thing either, but you talked about erring on the side of caution if you should. So can you talk about just a little bit of who we should immobilize? So if there is a neurologic deficit... If that's present, then go ahead and mobilize them because now you're thinking, oh, there probably is some type of neurologic injury and we don't really know exactly how it happened. So just go ahead and put them in a C-collar. Or if you just cannot perform a good exam, right? If you have no idea because the patient is down, they can't talk to you, you don't see them moving anything. I mean, that's the situation where it's better to be cautious and just put it on. And if the mechanism is suspicious for a possible spinal cord or column injury, those are kind of the three things that I would say. But again, if you're really thinking, oh, I don't know, and I'm kind of on the fence, it is better to put it on and, and let us know why it was put on. And then if we, when we can get a better exam in the hospital, then we can decide sort of to take it off. And we also tell everybody, honestly, in the hospital to open those collars and look, because when we don't open the collars, that's when we miss sort of the injuries that are beneath them. Absolutely good point for our paramedics arriving after firefighters as well who've Mm -hmm. already put a c-collar on just to make sure you're not missing anything under there (sighs) 
What a great episode, Ross. Let's summarize it for all the paramedics, EMTs, and platypuses out there. Or is it platypi? <laughs> I don't know much about dinosaurs, Matt. Egg-laying mammal. Semi-aquatic egg-laying mammal. All right. We start with ABCs, but as Matt astutely pointed out, structures that involve the ABC can all be injured with a wound to the neck. So we can break down our approach to these injuries by system, starting with A and B, assessing the respiratory system. Assess the patient's ability to maintain their airway like we talked about. Look for signs of a tracheal injury, like air bubbling from the wound. If you feel crepitus in their skin, this is suggestive of air leaking into the tissue, either from a tracheal injury or a pneumothorax. And if we feel that we need to intubate, we really want to optimize hemodynamics as much as possible before we attempt it. Don't forget to assess retention pneumothorax or tension hemothorax as a possible cause of a patient's hypotension and correct with needle decompression prior to your intubation. Next, we'll assess the vascular system, looking for evidence of massive hemorrhage. We'll attempt to control hemorrhage with direct pressure. If you can see the bleeding vessel, have someone apply direct pressure on it. Otherwise, you can pack the wound or even insert a Foley catheter and inflate the balloon to help with tamponade. Maria's point that assuming any hypotension in trauma is due to hemorrhagic shock is an awesome pearl, but also assess for things like tension pneumo, tension hemo, or cardiac tamponade. If blood pressure is not responding to fluids and blood products well, then this may be one of the rare cases of spinal cord injury with penetrating trauma to the neck. Hypotension secondary to neurogenic shock is treated with vasopressors, but unless you have really long transport times, this is rarely something we should be considering in the field. C-carlers are rarely indicated and can actually hinder care. Maria talks about the incidence of C-spine injuries, and it's rare. However, if there's signs of a focal neurologic deficit, a C-caller should be considered, as long as it doesn't hinder your ability to control hemorrhage from the wound. 